the uh, changing of the water to wine at Cana, uh, little town in Galilee. Well, we read that after this, what came before, he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum. Most of you have seen or you have in your Bibles there a map of Israel. You have, you have Judea down south. It's like North Dakota and South Dakota. And then you go north. And then the north, you have the Sea of Galilee, which is a little bit like an oval. And right up at the top of it, some of us have been there. Remember that, Jim? Right up at the top of it, you have Capernaum. And that's what it's talking about here. He went down to Capernaum because Cana was off to the northwest of that and came down right on the seashore to this very familiar city called Capernaum. Uh, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And there they stayed a few days. That gives us the physical setting. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand. All the Jews, everybody physically possible, were expected, required to go down to Jerusalem for the Passover feast annually. People came from all over the world. Jerusalem was not a small town at that time. Josephus if I remember correctly, Josephus said that there were maybe two and a half million people, which is hard to visualize, in Jerusalem. But keep in mind, they came from everywhere. This was a big deal among the Jews. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. They came from down north, but it's always called going up because Jerusalem was on a mountain. And he found in the temple something that he didn't like one little bit. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers were seated. This has caused some people, I just mentioned in passing, to think, okay, if you have out here in the church and you're selling donuts, should give them away. <laughs> we do. But if you're selling anything, books or whatever, oh, that's wrong. Just wait a minute. And he made a scourge of cords, and he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. This was a big deal. I'm not trying to be melodramatic, but I want to give you just a little bit of an idea of what's going on here, so bear with me. Jesus walks in, and there's a great big courtyard. There were animals, there were money changers, there was everybody, and he walks in, one man. You talk about dangerous. I've had it. Get this stuff out of here. Had been any other person, they might have been killed on the spot. Tables, everything going this way, going that way. Wow, 
Can you imagine? Nothing like this had ever happened before. Can you imagine how stunned they were? Now add to that little picture, tables and money going everywhere. And Jesus with a whip. I'll tell you a little about that. Vernon McGee told it best. Oh, when we were in seminary, he said that, uh, thank you guys. <laughs> I always leave this order behind me. He said back when he was a pastor young in Nashville, Tennessee, I believe it was Nashville. He said he was out golfing with a liberal preacher that he knew. And uh, that liberal preacher said to him, Vernon, you don't seriously believe that the gentle Jesus took a whip and drove those people out of there. McGee said in his inimitable way, he says, well, I'll tell you one thing. Them people that got out of there didn't think he was a bluffing. <laughs> no, nobody thought he was bluffing. They got the heck out of there. And a few hung around at some distance to contest with him. He made a scourge, of course, and he, uh, whether he hit them or not, or whether they ducked, I don't know. But they got out of there. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered. They knew the scriptures. They remembered that it was written back in the Psalms. Zeal for thy house will consume me. That was a messianic signature. That was back in the Old Testament, and they were supposed to realize this is a sign of the Messiah. They got it. The Jews, therefore, answered. Now, when it says the Jews in John, normally the Jews means the hostile Jews, which most of them were. This is, these are the elites. The Jews, therefore, answered and said to him, They got it, but they didn't get it. They understood this is a messianic signature, what he's doing. So they said, hey, buddy, show us your badge. By what authority do you take this action? And Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. <laughs> he often said things that were unclear, unclear to the people that didn't believe in him. They didn't get it. The Jews said, Are you crazy? They were talking about Herod's temple. It took 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days. They thought he was talking about the 
stones. He was speaking, the disciples later knew, they didn't get it right then. He was speaking of the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples, ah, their aha moment. They remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. All right. What really happened the day that the Lord Jesus cleaned house? What is it that really set him off? The spring of this drama, as I said, is in Jerusalem. The occasion is the Passover feast, a great national festival observed annually in Israel. It commemorated God's deliverance of Israel from their Egyptian bondage under Moses. It was one of three national holidays which every Jewish male was supposed to go to Jerusalem to observe. The city would be a cauldron of people from every nation because you recall that through the judgments of God upon Israel, there was what was called, you've heard the term, the diaspora. Jewish people were scattered throughout the face of the earth, even at that time. If they could, they would get back to Jerusalem. Obviously, not all could. This was a fitting occasion for the Messiah to make his entry to Jerusalem and make a symbolic statement about the need for drastic religious reform. He wanted to purify the temple worship, the house that bore his father's name, and symbolize his presence. Not surprisingly, Jesus made this first occasion. He did it at the end of his ministry. He does it now at the first. Two of them bookends. He chose this occasion as his messianic coming out. Not in the form of a verbal announcement, here I am. Not like that. But in the form of actions that the spiritually alert, the biblically informed, should have recognized as messianic statements. Now, there was more than this in the prophets about the zeal for thy, my house shall consume me. But that's enough for here. Let's review the event. Let's try to get a better picture of what transpired here. Everything here, though so ancient and remote, when we get past the historical overlay and get down to its inner principles, is resoundingly modern and reverberates with contemporary significance. As Jesus enters the temple precincts on this day, it's comprised of the temple proper. Watch my hands. Here's the temple. Then out here is a great courtyard. A lot of space. A lot of space. It was throbbing with crowds out there. It was not in the temple proper that all these animals were. No, they wouldn't allow that for a second. But they were out in the courtyards. They were in appointed spaces. Now, it's in the court of the Gentiles that he encounters an out religious outrage. 
instead of prayerful Gentiles who had become converted. What he found was a crude grass cross between a banker's row and a common stockyard. It was a place that had initially been dedicated to facilitate worship and extend it to the heathen. But now it was basically preempted by the religious elites for commercial use. It sounds in some ways a little worse than it was. For example, if you were up in Galilee or some distance away, you had to bring a sacrificial animal. I mean, that was part of the requirement. Well, you couldn't bring your sheep from Galilee. You couldn't bring it from Rome or any of those other places. So they had a priestical mindset, which was understandable. Now let's think about these things. They had to go down to Jerusalem. They had to bring the proper coinage. So there had to be a coin exchange. They had to have animals. They had to be able to come down there and find animals readily available for sacrifice. So there was nothing wrong with making provision for these needs. There was nothing irreligious or irreverent about that. It was all provided for. So what really set Jesus off that day? The reason I want to know that is because I want to know, by comparison, do we do things religiously that are cockeyed and would be deeply offensive to the Lord when we come to worship together? What set Jesus off was not the, the mere fact that a system was set up to facilitate the needs of the worshipers as prescribed by law. The abuse that he attacks goes much deeper. And we see these things today. I'll get to that. To get a better picture of what turned Jesus off so badly, uh, we would say set his pants on fire. We need to get a composite picture. What we can read between the lines of this text is made more explicit elsewhere. You see, Jesus played this number on another occasion at the end of his ministry. I mentioned that. He framed his messianic entry and exit with the same sign because they did the same thing every year over and over again. When we compare the accounts of his last cleansing with this one, Jesus' words are a little bit different, but it all gets at the same thing. In John's account, this one, Jesus indicts the merchants and the money changers for reducing a place of worship to a house of commerce. That in itself was bad enough. Think about that. Think contemporaneously. Take something sacred, for example, like Christmas. Instead of facilitating worship, what they did was commercialize everything. They exploited it as simply another gambit to turn a nice profit. 
Now are you beginning to understand a little bit of what makes you sick about Christmas at times? You see, their agenda was not to benefit religion in the true sense, but to benefit from it. These people were capitalists. They saw a chance to make a buck, and make bucks they did. As bad as that was, their sin was worse. We learn from Matthew as well as Mark and Luke that in his last sortie against the temple establishment, Jesus charged them with turning the house of God, which symbolized his very presence. The church does not. It's not a temple. To a place that he called a robber's den. Not only were their motives corrupt, but their profits were obscene. They had no interest in assisting worship. They had no interest in promoting prayer. They had interest only in facility, only in facilitating their capitalism before we ever had the term. Still got it in the church today, by the way. They had no compunction about using the sacred as an excuse to turn a buck. They were exploiting religion. I'm talking about the priests, the whole apparatus, for their own material gain and taking advantage of the worshippers' piety to line their own pockets. Is that beginning to sound familiar? Man, it's going on everywhere. I'm a writer of sorts. I've got five books of sorts. The first one I did through a commercial publisher. They, uh, they, are, they were, in this case, good people and had honorable motives. But... During the whole process, I've learned about, for years and years, learned about commercial religious publishers. I will say it, but I don't care who hears it. They're a sick bunch. If I were a big heretic, and there are all kinds of them out there, and I had a church about 30 times this size, I could write anything and they would publish it because they know it would make money. But somebody who comes along with a very sound book that ought to be out there, ought to be out there, ought to be promoted, they'll probably turn it down because they're not sure it will make money. That's pure capitalism. Now look, qualify that. If I'm a publisher... I do have to think about the bottom line or otherwise I won't be publishing very long. So you have to think about some of those things. But what I said still stands. They do that and they do it all the time. And they will say to make an excuse for themselves, I've seen it, I've seen it in print and I've heard it. Well, they want to sound noble. That's a voice that needs to be heard. It's an alternative point of view. No, it doesn't need to be heard. The last thing it needs is to be heard in our circles. 
No. It's really bad. Just before COVID struck, there was a conference downtown. And uh, these miracle workers, they were coming in this Bethel outfit. You see that term, run, 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 as far as fast as you can go away from it. They were coming in, and everything had a price tag. If you wanted to receive the gift of prophecy, I think the number was you could pay $35, and they'd get it for you. If you think that's an exception, it's not. I'll tell you a couple of other stories. I can tell you more, but we've got to end this service at some time. There was, uh, when I was in Denver, we had a, uh, we had a very large church. And uh, I was not the pastor but they invited in, I could say the name, you would know the name, a singer in his team. The church paid him $10,000 to come in one Sunday and do his thing. That was not uncommon. Everywhere that guy went, he got that much or more. Pastors, some of us have found it out when you want to get women speakers for your conference. They have a bureau, and if I'm if my name is Sally Doe, I'm making up a name, and I've been a few places, and now I think I've got enough of a name. I put my name in, and this men too. Speakers Bureau. And now they farm me out for a price. And you try to get them in here to speak. Oh, man. They want you to pay thousands. That's prostituting your gift if you have one. But they do it all the time without shame, both men and women, to speak at these special events. And they just rake in the cash, laughing all the way to the bank. So proud of themselves that they can command such money from your church and that church. Well, the priests were in on the ripoff. Of course, the corruption went deeper than that, we can be sure. The religious establishment, they controlled the temple. They policed its grounds and its activities. They knew what was going on. They weren't blind to it. They accepted it. And they licensed these vendors. They franchised extortion. Still do the same thing today in a little different way. Don't ever put up with it. Don't ever put up with it. Had the priests been righteous priests, they would have long ago terminated this corruption and exploitation. From their inaction, they betray themselves.
they know they were accomplices to these perversions. I'm sure they had handy-dandy excuses in their hip pocket. Somewhere along the line, they received a piece of the action as a price of allowing these vendors to do business. It was a cozy and profitable little arrangement. Jesus had a belly full of this garbage. Does that sound strange, the gentle Jesus had a belly full of this garbage? To him, it was moral outrage. And he meant to clean house. So he came in there, one lonely figure. His disciples were somewhere around. I'm sure they were in awe. And he started stampeding those animals with his whip, overturning tables, stacked with coin, and jerking seats from under the money changers. He flushed men and animals alike from the area by sheer, the sheer moral authority of his presence. Right there, said Messiah. No other human being could have done this. John Wayne and Clint Eastwood and Charles Bronson, my favorites, in their best days could never rival the monument of this moral manliness. The courage of it all is stunning. The effect of his towering moral presence is awesome. With a furious flurry of righteous courage, one man sent a small army. I'm not sure it was small. A money grubber scurrying for cover like a nest of, a nest of roaches when someone turns on the lights. Let me talk about something. What about the anger, the gentle Jesus? Anger. These are days we can talk about anger. In passing, we should note that something may seem inconsistent with your mental model of Jesus. Here we see him downright angry. Very angry. Physically and verbally angry. Jesus, the gentle Jesus, ticked off to the gills. Listen carefully. Anger is not wrong in itself. There is a place, and the Bible tells us, and this is one, there is a place for righteous indignation. However, let me qualify. Most human anger is not righteous. And if it is righteous the first five minutes, it does not stay righteous very long without turning sour like milk. It's been setting out too long. Remember that. There have been times when I've been most unrighteously anger. There have been times when I've been righteously anger. But I soon realize that it goes on and on and festers in my heart and it goes sour. But I want to say this. I worry about Christian people whose threshold for moral indignation is all but unreachable. Some things are moral and religious outrages. To fail to get angry for the Lord's sake in the face of those things is not a virtue, but it's a vice. If an infant suffered obvious energy but remained silent, didn't cry, we would think there's something wrong with that infant. 
If a mother or father saw one callously injured by another person and failed to respond emotionally, we would wonder what's wrong with those parents. What about their mental health? Their failure to respond smacks a moral indifference rather than the Christian virtue of forgiveness and self-control. To remain placid, and I'm surely not the first to say this, in the face of moral evil is indicative of a diseased moral apparatus. On the other hand, to keep nursing rage is a big mistake. So that's the historical context of all of this. So as we go forward together as individuals and as a church and we live in these days of moral outrage, let's remember that moral indignation, moral anger is not in itself wrong. But when we nurse it, it goes wrong. We can't nurse it. We've got to ask the Lord to help us with that. These are days when people are angry on all fronts. And we see some of the horrors that result from that. But as believers, let's learn to be angry within God's limits. And let's get off of it at an appropriate time and be righteous. Let's. But whatever goes on in the church, let's be sure, let's try to be sure, you and me and everybody, that we do not abuse these premises which are dedicated to worship and to bringing people to Christ, building them up in Christ and sending people out for Christ, that we do not allow for those kinds of abuses and commercialism and capitalism. We're not here to make money. Now, wait a minute. We have a retreat or something. We've got to ask you, the women or the men, got to ask you to step up and pay some money. But that's because we live in a world that requires money and it's not wrong to ask us to do our part to help sustain those things. But remembering all the time that we're asking for money based on need. We, we had, I'll call him that, years ago, not here any longer, a guy sitting out front. We used to have benches out there where those stairs go up. And it had to do with Awana. And they had to collect money, you know, to support the Awana program, all the stuff that they have to buy for Awana. And somebody asked him to chip in his $5. He went off. $5 here, $5 there, $5 for something else. Idiot. You can't sustain these programs without having the money to buy the stuff. It's got to happen. That's not wrong. He was wrong. Wrong as he could be. But when you're trying to just make money, let the bottom line look better by taking in more than you need to sustain it, that's wrong. And it's certainly wrong for 
preachers like myself to go out and sell themselves. It's not wrong for people to give a pastor. I don't do any of that stuff anymore. Not It's not a moral thing. I just like to stay home. I don't go out and to California and Canada and all those places and speak and get an honorarium for a weekend. It's not wrong. Those people leave their families and do all of that. In fact, I had a church in California. They were very generous. They put Christie through college. They literally did. Uh, they were very generous when I would go there, but I didn't charge them anything. They just did it out of their own goodwill, and a lot of people are like that. That's not wrong, but it's certainly wrong for us to go out and just to try to make a buck. I sell my books. I don't sell very many. Two a year. <laughs> it's a little better than that. I'm kidding. But I've got to replace them when they're gone out of my pocket. So some things aren't capitalism or not commercialism. We live in a world that requires money. You had to spend money to come to church, bless your heart. Some of you may have had to sacrifice your uh, inheritance to get to church, fill up your car. You know, things like that. Things are pretty tough out there these days. Austin and I went over to uh, Winco yesterday. Would you believe this is just kind of a side? I went to Costco at about 10 after 9. I figured I'd get in there before the crowd did. Do you realize cars were clear out in the parking lanes trying to get in? What on earth happened? Not even the people at the pumps knew. And then when we went to get out, we thought we'd go into Costco and pick up a few things we needed. And there was a line looked like the beginning of COVID. There was a line that went from there to Beaverton or somewhere. Does anybody know what's going on? Don't tell me now. Tell me after the service. Anyway, we went over to Winco. Well, that was better. And went up to buy some steel cut oats, which previously had been $1.97. I think they were $4.67. Yeah. Things are going absolutely crazy. I was not angry. I was stunned. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Well, friends, we got to know what we're all about. Jesus' zeal for my house consumes me. He wanted the temple to be about what it was supposed to be. Worship to be about what it was supposed to be. Not money grubbing and that sort of thing. And as the Lord, with his moral authority, he set about to correct it. Let's help him in that. Make sure we don't get caught up in any of that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your immeasurable goodness. We rejoice in your love and your grace and in your holiness. Sometimes, our Father, we forget what we're all about. Sometimes we get our hands dirty with things we never should. Help us to be sensible. Help us, our Father, to have with our Lord a sense of holy indignation. But help us to keep it in check and not to be foolish. 
God honor you in everything. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.